Well, it is a blessing again to be in the book of Philippians. We started last week, so if you weren't here, you're not too far behind at this point. We just dealt with the first couple of verses. You may want to turn there. It is a, a harrowing thing for a church to try and find a pastor. Um, we remember, those of us who are here, that it, it took us roughly three years to finally see the Lord place the Brown family in our midst, and that was a long three years. We understood in going through the process that, that there's a lot at stake, isn't there, in bringing a pastor in to shepherd alongside the other pastors uh, in a church, and it's not merely a matter of finding someone with a certain skill set, like it might be in a business environment. You don't just look for somebody who, who knows how to preach or knows how to conduct in a, a counseling session. You're looking for someone who is of godly character and you're trying to evaluate things that are hard to evaluate in a brief amount of time. And I, I tell you this, one, to encourage you to pray. Susie and I on our trip were had the privilege of attending a couple of small churches and both of them at this point are looking for shepherds. Um, someone who might bring to them protection and provision and guidance. And it struck me as I was encountering this passage that one of the non-negotiable things when you are looking for someone to shepherd a flock, something that's present in any shepherd worth his calling is that he loved the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one thing to love preaching. It is one thing to love study. It is one thing to love books. It is one thing to have passion for the ministry. But the number of men who sincerely love the flock of God I think are fewer, and they are a treasure when you can find them. Look at Philippians chapter two and verse 20. You'll see that Paul knew something of the challenge of this dynamic. Paul said, I hope, verse 19, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Note these words. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. That's quite a statement. And what strikes me and what I think I, I, I wanted to lay before you this morning before we engage the words of our text is the heart of the Apostle Paul for his people, for Christ's sheep. You want a pastor? Look for a man with the heart of the Apostle Paul. Look for a man like Timothy. And it is heartwarming, I trust you'll find it so this morning as we kneel alongside of Paul and we get to hear him pray for the church at Philippi. How unfeigned is his love and I was struck by his humble willingness. I'm always struck by it. His humble willingness to express that love for the people 
who were purchased by the blood of Christ. It's a consistent pattern in his letters and it is helpful, I trust, for us here to hear these things, to see them. You remember Paul over and over again saying what? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. The church is precious to Christ. You are precious to Christ. And therefore the church was precious to Paul because the church belongs to Christ and he was an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. And Paul had no trouble, though he were a man, though he understood surely what it is to, to, to be challenged as a man in, in every way, shape, and form. He was a man with calloused hands. He was a man who knew what it was to, to suffer for the responsibilities that he shouldered. And yet this man, like Jesus, was super tender. And that is the characteristic, really, of a godly father and of a godly pastor. You remember that Paul told the Thessalonians that he was like a nursemaid to them. Like a nursemaid who was feeding her own children and he, he nurtured them, and he, he, he desired them, and he longed for them. He had fond affection for them, and he too served the church at Thessalonica like a, like a man, like a father, in providing for his, his needs, and, and in encouraging and imploring and exhorting them, and so it is, men, that we ought to be men in the true sense of the word and not somehow in our minds envision some sort of Christianized John Wayne version of what it is to be a, a godly man. Yeah, you as a father are strong. You men who are shepherds here are called to be strong, but you're also called to be tender. You're also called to love earnestly and deeply and from the heart. Those things are evident in these verses, and I, I want to set that scene before we dive into them. The first 11 verses really can be outlined this way. The verses 1 and 2 are the salutation, and we looked at them last week. We saw that Paul spoke about himself as a slave of Christ, and he referred to the church as saints, those who had been set apart for God's interests by their faith and the blood of Christ. We saw last week that God's posture towards us was one of grace, his undeserved favor, and that not only did we have grace, but the, the out overflow of that grace was in fact that we had peace with God and therefore the peace of God in our lives together individually and corporately. And then in verses three to eight, we see Paul, this will be our text for the day, expressing thanksgiving. You'll note in verse three, right at the beginning, beginning of chapter one, he says, I thank my God. Those are key words to that section. He very personally will reveal his heart for the Philippians and his gratitude to God for them. And then in verse nine, you'll notice he begins a petition, and we'll look at this in the weeks ahead after 
a couple of weeks focused on the incarnation of Christ. We'll come back to this in the new year. And you'll note in verse nine, he says, and this I pray, and he goes on to articulate what he asks God for on behalf of these people. He delineates his specific requests. Well, we started last week looking at the salutation and we saw those precious truths and this week we wanna come to this prayer as Paul begins to lay out his heart for the Philippians. I don't know how it is with you. Are, you. are you grateful when people say to you, I've been praying for you? I'm so grateful for that. The older I get, the more I appreciate it. I, there is some wisdom that comes with age, isn't there? And, and, and weakness becomes more glaring. I'm always thankful when people say they're praying for me and, and, and really thankful as they lay out specifically how they've been praying for me. And that's the very thing that Paul begins to do here. And it's striking to me that there are a number of things that needed addressing in the Philippian church. There were a number of problems there. There were a number of things that needed some correction. There were elements of doctrine that needed to be clarified and sharpened. There were false teachers and false teaching that, had, that needed to be lanced and cut out of the church. There was factionalism in the church. There was some division going on. There was some infighting within the body. And I wanna note, just as we come to this text, how Paul begins, that we might learn from this, how Paul begins when he comes to this church. He's got things he wants to deal with. But he comes to them in a spirit that I think comes so clearly through this that is so different than our age. So different than the contentiousness and the caustic spirit of this world. And brother, sister, we would do well to pay attention to Paul's approach to what will amount to a good deal of correction as he moves through this letter. He doesn't begin with reproof. He doesn't come to them with a list of their shortcomings. He doesn't greet them at the front door with criticism and correction. He begins by expressing his love and his affection for them, telling them how he's been praying for them. Let's read together, shall we, beginning in verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Father, these words are yours. They are pure and they are perfect. They are alive and they are active. And we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would profit us by them this morning. In Christ's name, 
Amen. Envision yourself in the church hearing this letter read to you and those things that Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, just spoke. Is your heart warmed? I mean, no wonder Paul was so loved by this church, why they had so, such a high regard for him. What encouragement are these words? What hope? What warmth of friendship? What depth of love? This is Paul's prayer, at least the beginning of it, for the Philippians, and we see his heart revealed in it. And it's good for us as we come to the prayers of Scripture, A, to acknowledge that they are prayers so that we understand what's going on here, and B, so that we might understand not only what to pray for, but the underlying priorities and the motivations that are characteristic of God-honoring prayer. In other words, this prayer should serve as a model for our own. And that's the way I want to approach this passage today. I want to do so asking the question, what is going on in the heart of the Apostle Paul as he lifts the Philippians up in prayer? And I want to give you three attitudes that undergird mature Christian prayer. Three attitudes that undergird mature Christian prayer. It might be better to use the word perspectives as we go through this. I want you to note, first of all, that Paul's prayer was deeply personal. Paul's prayer was deeply personal. And I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but it should be obvious in reading this passage that Paul is not playing at religion. This is no formal approach to prayer. It is deeply intimate and it is personal. It's not formulaic. There's nothing here, is there, that's, that's rote or ritual. What you hear is the overflow of a man's heart. He is earnest, he is sincere, and the whole prayer, in fact, the whole letter, we'll get to enjoy this for months. The pathos of Paul is so evident. He is vested in these people. And he is vested in his God. In fact, look at verse three with me. Note this, I thank my God. Paul is not gonna have a little talk with Jesus when he gets home tonight. Paul is not talking to the man upstairs. He is not coming to this from the vantage point of talking to the good Lord. There is no southern twang in what Paul is doing here. He is sincere and he is coming to this as a Christian, not in some sort of, sort of, you know, kind of Bible Belt country Christianity. Paul does not say prayers, he prays. He is bowing before the God of heaven and earth, but note that he comes to it from a very personal vantage point. He says, I thank my God. He knew the God to whom he was praying. And he knew that the God to whom he was praying knew him. And there was a link in that relationship that was no mere formality. This was a man who came before his God. 
And he knew that he was his God and that God thought of Paul as his own. I thank my God. I I wonder this morning, just in reading this, do a little mental reflection. Do you ever speak like this? Do you think like this about God? Is he yours? Do you tell people so? When you go to prayer, do you understand that this is not some foreign being way up there, so transcendent that he cannot be approached through faith and the redeeming blood of Christ? No, this is a God, yes, who is all that. He is holy and he is beyond us to be sure. And yet, he is near, is he not? He's my God, Paul says. Do you know this God? Do you speak with him intimately like this? Are you engaged regularly in bringing your heart before him? J.C. Ryle in his great little pamphlet, Do You Pray? says this, quote, I ask again whether you pray because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. This is one of the commonest marks, he says, of all the elect of God that they cry to him day and night. Is that true, brother, sister of your own life? You see, Paul was deeply, personally, genuinely related to this God through faith in Jesus Christ, and this is where all true prayer begins. He humbly bows before his God and he gives thanks and praise and glory and honor right where it's due. Well, I also want you to note his relationship with the Philippians. It also was deeply personal. In fact, keep your finger there in chapter one, but if you look at chapter three, notice that he says, I'll give you a second to turn there. Look at how personal this is again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. There was a sense of ownership, even as Paul thought, partnership with the church at Philippi. You are my brethren. I'm in you and you're in me. There is a part of us that is connected in all of this. We are intimately tied through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my beloved brethren, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, You can see that Paul is tightly knit and deeply vested in these people, and it comes so clearly through the language of the text that we read earlier. I hardly need to develop it at all. Paul says, I thank my God in every or all my remembrance of you. There's joy in my every prayer for you all. Verse seven, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Verse eight, I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Wow. Beloved, Paul would never have understood the common concept that church was a place that you attend. That it was a gathering that yes, I show up, at least for most of the service. I plunk a few bucks in the plate, I sing the songs, and then I go home to football and to food and to all that really matters. 
You see, Paul understood clearly that church is about the people of God, the redeemed. My brother and sister in Christ, those for whom Christ paid. It's about fellowship. It's about the one another's. And Paul writes to the Philippians, doesn't he, things that you might speak to your own family. And he does that because the church is a family. He does that because spirit is thicker than blood. He does that because our, our heavenly family is one that is eternal, not simply temporal. We are brothers and sisters, and we are members, says Ephesians 2.19, not only of one another, but we are members of God's household. We've been knit together spiritually in Christ. We're all unified, one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God, and note it, Father over all. We are a family, and Paul understood it that way. You can, you can see it, this sort of pathos, this depth of feeling, this, this heart affection that Paul had. And again, I would just ask you, is that where you're coming from? When you think about the people sitting next to you, well, you're all sitting with your families, of course you do. But, but the people over here and the people over there, beloved, we need to broaden this horizon, many of us, to understand the, the depth and the level of this kind of fellowship that we share in Christ. Do you love the saints? Would your brothers and sisters in Christ here confess and, and understand that you in fact love them? Do they know you? Is it evident to them? Is there a warmth in your affection for them? Is there a, a depth in your concern? Is there a sincerity? And can they see that sincerity by the way you grieve in their suffering? By the way you rejoice with all that is joyful in their life? By the way you abundantly and generously care for their needs? By the way you eagerly sacrifice in your service for others in this congregation? Too many times we, we look at the Apostle Paul and we say, well, you know, that's good for you. You were an apostle. You were called to that. <laughs> we're reading our Bibles with one eye open. We're all called to that. Not apostleship, but to the kind of heart that Paul has here for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, that we would love still more and grow in our free and unfettered expression of love for one another from the heart. May we be zealous in even expressing that love one to the other. These people were precious to Paul and his heart is large toward them. They were his spiritual siblings, and he was thankful, and he was filled with joy when he thought about them. And he, this note this, he told them. He told them. When's the last time you went to a brother or sister in Christ and said, I have so fond affection for you? I just can't tell you. I'm out of words. Here's... I'm going to greet you with a holy kiss. 
<laughs> I don't know how you'd express it, but here's my point. Have you ever, fathers, let me talk to you again because I'm just so moved again by all I've been listening to in, 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 in the office in these membership things. When's the last time you conveyed that kind of affection verbally to your kids, to your wife? Looked them in the eye and said, gave him a big hug and simply said, it's only right that I feel this way about you because my heart is bound up with yours. Man, we need dads who do that. We need moms who do that. We need church members who do that. Don't ever be afraid to convey those things to people, beloved. They'll think you're weird, but wonderfully so. They really will. (laughs) Wonderfully so. They'll go home treasuring that up in their hearts. Well, that brings us then to a second attitude of mature Christian prayer. Not only was Paul deeply, personally involved with these people, and that, that that, that is what motivated and drove him to pray for them, but secondly, Paul's prayer you'll note this, was consistently thankful. Paul was consistently thankful, persistently thankful in praying for the Philippians. Again, back to verse three, I thank my God, note this, in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, with, with joy in my every prayer for you all. In nearly every letter Paul writes, every one of his epistles, he he begins with some expression of gratitude. And again, that's something we should take to heart. Paul opens his mouth and the first thing to just spill out is gratitude. Uh, You wanna know, Philippians, when I kneel to pray for you, when I think of you and I pray, I want you to know right up front where I begin, I begin by thanking my God for you. I don't grumble about your shortcomings, I'm grateful to God for you. And this attitude is so basic, so fundamental to prayer, why? Because God is good and every good and perfect gift comes from him. He is a giver, is he not? 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, rejoice always, that's a theme in this book. Pray without ceasing, That's a theme in this book. And in everything, give thanks. And here we see Paul working out that very thing. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know what the will of God is? Thanksgiving. Rejoicing in him, praying and dialoguing with God continually. And that prayer should be marked by gratitude. This is the overflow if I can put it this way, of Paul's heart. He opens his mouth and what spills out? You know the verse, it's out of the abundance of what? The heart that the mouth speaks. Have you ever thought about that in relation to your prayer life? Have you ever thought about it? The things that I ask for, the things that I pray are really the overflow of my heart. And what does it say, beloved, if our prayers are bent only on material things? Our next meal, the next dollar, my injured knee. What does it say if our prayers are filled perpetually with complaint? 
about others, that, that we come to God with a, a, a perpetual fix-it list. What does it say about our heart if our prayers are cold and formal and distant? You see, all of those things are the overflow of the heart. God fix this, God bless that, God change her, God heal this, God do this and God do that. And as I thought about this this week, it took me back to my parents and my upbringing and an album. Now for you under the age of 40, you may not know what I'm talking about, but we used to have these black things called record albums called Galloping on My Dinosaur. It was a children's album. (laughs) And the music was all aimed at instilling virtue in kids and one of my favorite songs on that album was called The Gimme Pig. And the chorus went like this, gimme this, gimme that, gimme, gimme, gimme what I'm pointing at. I've gotta have everything, little or big. That's the song of the gimme pig, the perpetual, the, 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 the endless song of the gimme pig. We need to beware of gimme pig praying. Certainly, hear me, don't go out of here today not hearing this, okay? We are bid by God, we are even commanded by God to bring everything before him, all the things that are on our hearts, physical, yes, for health, yes, about our anxieties, yes, don't get me wrong. The question is, Are those things coupled with gratitude? Are those prayers coupled with something beyond the sphere of the the horizontal plane? I mean, you, you think about this. Paul had material needs, didn't he? The Philippians had material needs, didn't they? Paul had a number of concerns for the church at Philippi and He was one who certainly knew trying circumstances. In fact, as he writes these words, where is he? He's in prison in Rome. And yet none of that seems to squeak into this prayer. You see, too often we betray a sense of entitlement when we charge right into the throne of God and begin to lay before him a honeydew list, if you will. That's too narrow and too earthbound and, and, and too man-centered, too self-centered. It reminds me of those 10 lepers that Jesus healed. And you remember how many came back to say thank you? One. 90% of those who were healed never even returned And that question about Jesus, those two questions are are so piercing. We're not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Beloved, do you like it when your children reflexively treat you as though you are little more than a means to their immediate satisfaction? You exist for their gratification at all times. That's the way you come out of the womb. 
But it's a tragedy when that's the way we are at 50. You know how inappropriate that is, that demanding attitude, the ingratitude on the part of your children, and it frustrates you, and you want to say to them, say thank you. Have you taken that to heart? Have we glanced in the mirror? Do we come before the Lord with that same mindset? We've received so much. You will never be able to thank him for all you've received. You're not even aware of all you've received. He's that good. Well, Paul shows us that prayer is offered with gratitude. Again, look back at verse 3. I thank my God in every remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There is a, a Greek alliteration in the Greek language here. It's, it's a word that means every and all. It's a group of words, really, that all begin with a puh sound. And, and it's clear in the Greek as he goes through this. And what he's really saying is, at every remembrance of you, every time, every prayer, every one of you. Now, Paul isn't saying here that somehow he just prayed perpetually for the Philippians, that he was praying for them 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. What he is teaching us is that every moment of our lives is to be lived with an awareness that that God is with us, that he's attentive to us, that he is engaged in our lives, even in the most intimate details, and we're to live in light of this. I put it to you this way before. It's like never hanging up the phone. You're just, you always have the phone on. You're you're looking to the Lord in in every touch and turn of life, taking everything to him. And, And Paul reminded the church often that this was the way it was to be for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, I gave it to you already, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Be on the alert with all perseverance and all petition for all the saints. Pretty far-reaching. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, most of you have it memorized. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So this is Paul's consistent pattern. We should expect nothing less if we, as we come to the, the book of Philippians that, that Paul would give thanks for them and he would pray for them. And so when Paul thought about the Philippians, he was provoked to pray for them, and as he did, in every case, he prayed with gratitude, remembering God, the God who elected them to salvation, the God who redeemed them by his blood, the God who adopted them, the God who saved them when they were objects of wrath, when they had no heart for him at all, But God in his grace and his mercy redeemed them and now they share in all the spiritual blessings that Paul shares in and Paul is overwhelmed with gratitude. I tell you, you can pray this prayer for every genuine believer you know. What God had done for these Philippians, these saints, was profound and it was only right that Paul should worship God for them, praise God for them, thank God for them, honor God for his great work in them. 
again, how, how could Paul pray for people who had, had these faults and shortcomings? And you know where I'm headed with this. How can you pray for one another in here? We were just talking about in a membership meeting about the importance of the one another commandments and that we make much of them here. And one of the things that's clear in those commandments is that they were, they were made for conflict. And as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, and that happens through what? Friction. We're gonna have friction in here. We're gonna have friction in relationally. I had some last night with a member of this church. Bless her heart. And I was wrong, and I spoke foolishly. And I texted her, and she didn't reply. I gave it 10 minutes, and then I called her, and she didn't pick up. Found out she was just on the phone with somebody else, and she forgave me freely, and today we're at peace. And brothers and sisters, that is the way life is going to operate in the church of Christ. We don't divide when it gets hard, and we don't harbor things, and we don't camp on it and grow bitter. Instead, we forgive and we love one another, and this is all part of it. You see, Paul did not start by meditating and focusing on and zeroing in on and taking his magnifying glass and getting down into the nitty-gritty of the faults of these Philippians. He started with God who saved them. And who not only saved them, but is saving them. And not only is saving them, but will save them fully and finally when we will all get to heaven and there'll be no more need to text or make a phone call or to confess our sins. Amen? What a blessing. You see, Paul looked beyond the immediate, beyond the annoying beyond their faults and past their shortcomings, and he looks to the sovereign God who has purchased them with the blood of his son and calls them saints. And Paul was confident, as I said, that God would work on whatever needed to be fixed. You know that. Verse six, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will mature it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, that was his focal point. These were God's sheep, and he should be thankful for all that God is doing in them and through them. Flip over with me to the left. Go to the book of Corinthians, just so we can see this pattern again. We need to anchor this thing in our head. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember who it is to whom Paul is writing here. These are the Corinthians, a name that had become synonymous with a loose lifestyle. This church had a myriad of problems. But note how Paul starts, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful through whom you all were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see it? Paul again begins with gratitude for what God has accomplished and is doing in these people. He acknowledges that God had saved them and is sanctifying them. He thanks the Lord for all the gifts that were given to them so that they were not lacking in any and they were eagerly awaiting the return of the Lord, right? Where he says that God will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had a vision for who God was going to bring them to be and that caused him to well up with gratitude again. And you can see this in so many places in his epistles. Which makes sense as to why Paul was filled with such joy as he thought about other believers. He was just thrilled with what God had accomplished and was accomplishing in them. Beloved, again, if we look in the mirror, is this how we are praying for one another? I would say to you that this is how you can pray for thorny people. This is how you can pray for that brother who rubs you the wrong way. This is how you can pray for your imperfect pastors. This is how you can pray for that lady who just drives you nuts. You remember who they are in Christ and what Christ is doing for them. And as you reflect on all of that and all that he's doing to sanctify them, as you envision them and see them as the Lord will make them when he fully and finally conforms us to the image of his son, and your heart will leap in praise to God. You begin with thanksgiving in every remembrance of them. Well, Paul's prayer for the church was deeply personal. It was deliberately thankful. It was consistently thankful. And thirdly, Paul's prayer was predominantly spiritual. And I want you to see this again. It's Paul's posture. There is a focus. There is a mindset in Paul as we pay attention to the tenor of his praying that we see that his prayers, again, are very different than the ones we so often hear coming from our own mouths. You look at what dominated the horizons of Paul's prayers, and it was not things of this earthly kingdom, all that is material and physical. It's not that he never prayed for those things, and we'll see that as, as the letter moves on. Paul knows that this church, for instance, is praying for his deliverance from prison, and he thanks them for it. But the real focus were not the things of this kingdom, but the things of God's kingdom. That's where Paul's mind is. Note again in verse 4, he tells us right at the end, he says, I was always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And then he tells us why. It's in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now for I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When Paul thanks God for the Philippians, he does so 
for two reasons. One, he does it because of their participation. He rejoices for their participation in the gospel. And by that he means not that they were saved, he's going to get back to that, but he's rejoicing in the fact that they have come alongside of him in gospel ministry. They are serving alongside of Paul, and they had done so with perseverance. In fact, he says it right there in verse 5, your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And you can read that if you want to go. We'll have it as a scripture reading here in the weeks ahead. But Acts 16, we see Paul go to Philippi. And you remember when he first gets there, he goes down by a river and he preaches the gospel to a number of women who were gathered there for prayer, and Lydia is the first convert in Philippi. She immediately opens her home and begs Paul and his his entourage to come into that home and to use it as a base for ministry. In fact, verse 40 of chapter 16 intimates that it was probably in Lydia's home where the Philippian church met. Here's a lady who surrendered right from the get-go to participating with Paul in the work of the gospel from the first day. And Paul says, even until now. The Philippians had prayed for Paul. They had faithfully preached the gospel amid much opposition. They were concerned for Paul. And so they sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus to him to encourage him. And just as Paul was suffering for his faithfulness to the gospel, so the Philippians were suffering persecution. And still in the midst of all of that, they supported Paul financially when at one point no other church was willing to do so. This church was close to Paul's heart because they were co-laborers alongside of him, and they were loyal to God's cause. They sought to promote the gospel, and as such, their heart for Paul and Paul's heart for them was, was, was tightly knit. And Paul looks at all of that, and he says, you know what, nobody does that sort of thing. Nobody gives their money sacrificially. Nobody suffers under the weight of persecution. Nobody preaches the gospel faithfully. Nobody prays faithfully unless they've been genuinely saved. And that thrills Paul, and it's what really spins him forward into verse 6, that he was confident. These things make me confident, that you are in fact in Christ and that God will be faithful in completing what he has begun in you. That's the second thing that Paul is is grateful for, that God not only had partnered the Philippians with him, but that they, he had, they, they were going to be all that Paul knew they would be through the sanctifying work of God in their life. In other words, Paul saw the sincere fruit, the genuine fruit of their salvation, and he rejoices with gratitude. I want you to see this too. Let's go to the right this time to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and you'll see this same pattern. Remember, we are talking here about how to pray for our brother and sister in Christ. And beloved, you you should look to each other with an eye to see the giftedness and the faithfulness in one another. And when you see that, it should thrill your heart so that you're, you're rejoicing again in the genuine work of God in their lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 2, 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Notice this, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith or how your faith works and labor of love, how your love labors and the steadfastness of your hope in Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, uh, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How did he know that? Because he could see the fruit of genuine faith in the life. Second Thessalonians, he comes back to the same theme, chapter one and verse three. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. What is that? That's evidence that God is alive, that Christ is alive, that the Spirit of God is alive in the heart. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions in which you endure. This is plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Endurance and faithfulness and persecution was evidence of a sincere faith and a genuine faith, and that caused Paul to rejoice. But do you see that he, he again is focused, he's thinking about who these people are and what God has accomplished in them and what they are doing and how they're bound to the purposes of God. Do you see that he's all swept up in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world? Well, he continues to expand on this in verse seven. Let's look at it briefly. Back in Philippians. He continues, for it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers, now note this, of grace with me. Now that word partaker, and the word that we saw up above in verse five in view of your participation, partaker and participation come from the same root word, which is the word koinonia. Most of you who have been in the church for a while have heard that term. You know that it's the word that we translate oftentimes fellowship. Paul had a fellowship with these saints in the gospel work, and he has a fellowship with them, not only in a gospel work, but he has fellowship with them as partakers of grace, God's undeserved kindness. He's saying, really, that, that what I have in common with you Philippians is a fellowship in the grace of the gospel. They were partakers of grace together with Paul. They'd been saved by grace through faith. But beyond that, they shared a mutual fellowship in the work of the gospel. And this was reason for thanksgiving. This was reason for joy. And I want to come back to that word koinonia sometime in the future as we come back and sweep up some of these things. It's a rich word, it's a great word in this book and we'll look at it together. 
This was the reason for Paul's thanksgiving. This was the reason for his joy. And you can see again that Paul was not focused so much on the temporal things of this life, physical maladies, the suffering of this present age. He's fixed on eternal realities, gospel progress, the matters of God's kingdom, the glory of God, the return of Christ, the completion of God's people at the end of the age, all of these things for Paul are what dominated the landscape of his heart as he prayed. Paul's prayers, in other words, were not earthbound. Some of you who like to garden know what it is when a plant is root-bound. And that plant is stuck, more or less, at the same height, and eventually, if it remains root-bound, it just dies. Those roots need to be cut and need to be loosed so that that plant can send its roots deep and it can flourish, and so it is with mature Christian prayer. We don't want to be root-bound and tied to just an earthly plane, a stunted growth, because we're just consumed with the here and now. No. We want our roots to go deep and we want to be thinking more about God, more about his kingdom, more about his purposes. We want to grow to have eyes to see what God is doing in the lives of his saints. And it's for those things that we worship him. We give him praise and thanksgiving. Yes, for our physical provision. Yes, for our healing. Yes, for the way he works in our midst in in very simple and earthly ways blessings. All of that's good. Don't get me wrong. Praise God for that. But we want our prayers to grow up and to bear still greater and greater fruit for the kingdom. In fact, I think this is why so many people get so bored with praying. It's because it does amount to a honeydew list most of the time. We just come bringing the same physically bound, earthy stuff to God. We want to learn, and I think if you, if you tra- take these principles home with you and, and you begin to look at the prayers of Scripture, you will find these are not just Paul's priorities. You'll see them in David. You'll see them in Moses. You'll see these in the men of God as they pray, the women of God as they pray. So, beloved, all kinds of prayer are in the scripture, and I, I would be the first to say to you, you can read through the Psalms and you will see that there are earthly things that are burdens on David's heart that he just charges in and he begins with, Lord, rescue me. But inevitably, somehow, by the end of that Psalm, where does he end up? Relieved of his anxiety, confident in God, comforted in God, and thinking again about God's ultimate purposes and plans. This is where we want to end up, so that our prayer is more than giving a laundry list of needs, but our prayer becomes worship of the God who is worthy to be worshiped. It is right and good to bring those things before the Lord. He is a very present help in trouble, but don't forget Paul's example here. His eyes are lifted higher than the horizontal plane. It's lifted up to praise God for eternal things, to thank him for his mighty saving power, to thank him for his grace and his mercy, to thank him for sanctification, to thank him for the the power, the the flood, the, 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 the unstoppable freight train that is the word of God and the gospel of God which makes progress even this day until the end.
May our prayers be more like the Apostle Paul. Let us cultivate, beloved, a deeper love and personal involvement with God and with one another. May our affection for one another grow still more and more. May it be said of us as it was said of the Philippians that your love continues to abound. Let us pray more eagerly for each other with gratitude for the goodness of our Lord who has placed us here for the work of the gospel. Let us cultivate that, that attitude of gratitude, if you will, so that, so that we learn to be thankful worshipers of the high king of heaven and, and our prayers are lifted up above the mundane of this earth. Let us pray for the spiritual well-being and the maturity of God's people alongside of our interceding for their their, their bills and their hospital and their whatever else are their needs, all of that stuff, again, vital, but we want to focus on their spiritual well-being. And beloved, may our praises ring with joy as we think about God and all that he has started. And may we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ with an eye not only to who they are, but who they will be because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Father, our Father, we look to you and again give you thanks for your word, for its instruction, for its comfort, for its encouragement, for its conviction. Lord, we thank you for this prayer of the Apostle Paul. It humbles us and it reminds us, Lord, that too often we have been earthbound in our prayers and selfish in our prayers. Lord, we want to be elevated in our praying. We want to be helped. We want to grow. We want to be mature. Forgive us for all the times, Lord, that we were like the nine lepers who enjoyed your blessings, but we're not moved to gratitude in our hearts to thank you for all that you've done for us. Lord, we forget none of your benefits. You have renewed our years with good things and you have given us much in this life. Lord, oftentimes those things cloud our vision so that we become presumptuous and Lord, that attitude begins to dull our taste, to dull our hearts, to cloud our thinking so that we become demanding in our prayers and seeing you as a, a, a God in the sky who, who merely exists to meet our needs and our desires. Lord, thank you for your condescension that you do meet our needs and our desires, that you have given us every good gift Lord, elevate our praying that we might pray to you as Paul does, with a mind fixed on your kingdom, with a heart that's consumed with your great power and your love and your majesty. Lord, your grace and your compassion and your mercy upon sinners. Lord, remind us again that we are not worthy of any of these things, that we might see your love and your grace for what it is. And may gratitude spill over, Lord. May it spill over to you because you are worthy of our praises, worthy of our worship. I thank you for these saints before me who are called saints, 
saints whom you have called into fellowship. And Lord, for each of their weaknesses, for all of mine, we acknowledge that we are of flesh, that we are but dust, but you are a God who has compassion upon those who fear you. And so, Lord, we thank you again for enduring our frailties, for bearing with us in the midst of our weaknesses. Lord, all the while never drawing back, but giving freely day after day after day. And Lord, we remember him who died in our stead, and we give you thanks. Lord, we praise you for your mercy. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf for taking our sins for giving us your righteousness and drawing us into fellowship with yourself and with the Father, with the Spirit, for the promise of eternal life, for the knowledge, Lord, that these sins will one day, though they are cut loose already by faith in Christ, our perfect and righteous Redeemer, Lord, one day we will experience them no more. They will be in the rearview mirror, and we will know what it is to be conformed to the image of your Son. We will know the glory that is ours because of your kindness, and Lord, it will be ours forever and ever and ever. Lord, how your people shine, how precious they are to you, to me. Lord, how precious they are to each of us. We thank you for your great work of saving sinners. In Christ's name, amen. The Gettys, if you are unaware or unfamiliar with that music, it is worth getting on Spotify and finding them. It will edify you and give you great encouragement and joy to sing their songs. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you to stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Lord bless you.